As we turn to the scriptures, let us pray. God of eternity, God of this moment, as we listen now to these words, may they be not just words on a page, but the empowering of your Holy Spirit that we respond with new commitment to what you are doing in your world today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first lesson is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 14, immediately after the event in which Jesus called a tax collector, also named Matthew, but a different Matthew, to come and follow Jesus. And then the text begins. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I should have mentioned earlier a warm welcome to Mr. Cliff Parrish, who will be joining us for the next five weeks. Cliff is a longtime friend of this congregation and played in this sanctuary for the first time, was it 40, 50 years ago, as a young boy. So we welcome you back, Cliff, and thank you for sharing your gifts with us over these next five weeks. This morning, we're continuing our summer sermon series on the prophets, sitting down today with the prophet Isaiah. But today's sermon will look a little bit different. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Emily Knight from the Methodist Church next door called me with a suggestion that we collaborate on a sermon writing experiment. We would ask our congregations to suggest different places from which to write a sermon and then we would share what each of our congregations suggested and choose three different places to go and bring the text from Isaiah with us uh, to think about the sermon for that week. It was a great creative idea, so uh, I agreed, and we sent an email out to our congregations. And I'm thankful to all of you who sent suggestions in. I got over 30 suggestions from you all of places to go to write a sermon, so it was a lot of fun to read through those. Uh, we compared the suggestions we received from each congregation and decided to go to three places with this text from Isaiah 43. Boneyard Beach, the Kingsley Plantation, and the Jacksonville Zoo. And so what follows are three different meditations based on this text that emerged from each of those three places. The overarching lesson, I think, that we learned through this process is that there's such great value in taking the scripture with us to all the different places that we inhabit over the course of a day. Of course, it's wonderful to have our usual spot that we go to to read the scripture, whether it's our favorite coffee shop or a favorite chair or the back porch, 
Obviously, those routines are wonderful, but it's also a great value, as we discovered, in bringing the text along and thinking about how it speaks to us differently in accordance with our present environment at any given time. So this was truly a fun process, um, and I'm excited to share it with you today. I will read the text before each of these three meditations, and if you've been to these places, I'd encourage you to call that place to mind as the text is read. And if you've not been, there will be a photo on the screens of each of those places as we read through the text. So I invite you now to listen for God's word as it comes to us from Boneyard Beach, Isaiah chapter 43. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Boneyard Beach is a place where old meets new. All beaches, I suppose, are made new daily by the rising and retreating of the tides that leave behind a new formation of smooth sand. But the trees on this beach are vestiges of the past, fallen, bleached, and made smooth by the sun and the wind. They recall a forest that once stood there, which has gradually eroded away as a new beach has formed. But though fallen, these massive trunks tether the new to the old. Their presence on the beach prevents a more rapid erosion of the shoreline. These ghosts of the past stand as a buffer against winds and waves that would otherwise continue to transform the island more quickly. The prophet says that God stands ready to do new things. Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old, God says. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? This pattern of moving from old to new is a deeply biblical motif. God is always transforming, reshaping, and rebuilding creation into new creation. There can be little doubt that God is a God of redemption and newness. The old has passed away, the new has come. 
But Boneyard Beach left me thinking about how God moves us from the old to the new. We might think that the old must be removed so that the new can take its place, as though the two swap out. We might think that there must be no sign at all of the old for the new to be really real. Or we might think that the old must be erased from memory for the new to have arrived. And the text almost sounds this way to me as it says, do not remember the former things. Its claim that the new springs forth also sounds sudden and all-encompassing. So I wondered about how we should think about the old's relationship to the new. Does the new supplant and completely replace the old? Well, the Hebrew verb springs forth is not, it doesn't require that the action be especially sudden. In fact, it's a horticultural term. It means to sprout or spring up. It describes the gradual yet determined emergence of a new plant, which materializes not out of thin air, but within an existing landscape. And remembering, in the biblical sense, has less to do with forgetfulness and more to do with recalling things in the proper way. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, God often tells the people, not because they had forgotten the facts of their history, but because that history was not informing their present in the way that it should. There is a sense in which we can perceive that which is new only from the vantage point of the old, right? We can see how far we've come or how much has changed only when our memory of the old remains, giving us perspective. But our understanding of the old must change for the new to come. As I stood on Boneyard Beach looking at the withered remains of these trees, I was surprised by their subtle beauty in these trunks, which were dead and gone, and yet a part of the landscape playing their little role in the new that had come upon that place. And I thought about grief, how people who lose someone they love so often long for a day when they get over their loss and move on. This kind of longing seems to be for a new that replaces the old, a new that forgets that pain. I can relate to that longing but I also know it is not possible because we do not get over losses in life, but we do grow into them. We learn to wear them. We learn to embody them. And in doing so, the new does come, new life, new hope, new joy. But the new comes not through forgetting, but through a different kind of remembering. Eventually, we come to accept that if we were to paint the story of our lives as a landscape, it wouldn't be a picture-perfect scene. There would be dead trees breaking up an otherwise pristine shoreline. There would be dry areas and overgrown areas in our landscape. But that would be our lives as they really are, right? 
not in some idealized form. So when we come to accept that our lives are not scenes of unbroken serenity or perfect beauty, when we come to accept that, we gain the freedom we need to grow into the new as it emerges from the old. But the old is not forgotten. It doesn't disappear. It is transformed. It's transformed. And on account of our newfound understanding of the old, we are given eyes to see the new things that God graciously works among us, the new things that spring forth. Amen. Listen now once again to God's word as it comes to us from the Kingsley Plantation. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Kingsley Plantation is an eerie place to visit in the middle of the week when almost no one is there. The plantation once produced Sea Island cotton by means of enslaved labor. And as you enter the park, you pass a semicircle of what was once 32 slave cabins, and it sends a shiver down your spine to see those ruins. As we walked towards the Kingsley House, we came upon an old fountain, which must have once channeled the waters of a spring. And the text sprung to mind. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. We imagine the thirst of those who labored in these fields day after day. We were thirsty just standing there for 10 minutes. We found it difficult to know how to inhabit a place like the Kingsley Plantation, which is so beautiful now and yet has such an awful past. The site does its best to tell the stories of those enslaved there and their families whose backbreaking labor produced massive wealth for the landowners. Many are at least as well remembered as the Kingsleys themselves. And yet those oppressed peoples did not live to see a day of redemption. 
you know, it's common for us when we read the biblical text to place ourselves at the center of that text, right? We often ask ourselves, what is this text saying to me? But as Emily and I read the book of Isaiah within the confines of the Kingsley Plantation, we felt like this text was actually speaking around us or beyond us. We felt the text's promises echoing throughout the centuries past, but not to us, but rather to those enslaved that once inhabited that space. I will break down all the bars, God says. The shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. We realize that had we stood in that place 200 years ago and read that very text, we would have been the Chaldeans. We would have been the ones from whom God's word promised deliverance and redemption. But the biblical text can still be meaningful to us, even when it does not make a promise directly to us, but only peripherally. We may be left to wonder for others, for whom is God making a way in the wilderness today? For whom is God making a path through the mighty waters today? And even if that path is not first of all for us, no one ought to sojourn alone in the wilderness. We all remain players in God's redemptive plan for the whole world. So we can always voluntarily join the movement, linking hands with another on a journey through the wilderness that leads to freedom. Because after all, God welcomes any of us and all of us along the paths of righteousness. Amen. And finally, listen once again to God's word as it comes to us from the Jacksonville Zoo, from the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they're extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things. Or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself so that they might declare my praise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, admittedly, Emily and I went to the zoo because the scriptures mention ostriches and jackals. And we wanted to lay eyes on an ostrich if we were going to think about how it might honor the Lord, as the text says. 
So in the Africa section, we spotted an ostrich standing quietly beneath the shade of a tree. And as we waited for that ostrich to do something profound, above us, countless white birds were making an awful racket. They had taken over a tree with tons of nests, and their squawking sounded completely meaningless and downright annoying. It sounded like this. get the idea. I asked Emily with a smile if she thought the birds were declaring God's praise. And as we laughed about it, we realized how much noise there actually is in this text from Isaiah, from the breaking of bars to the shouting of lamentation to the sound of churning waters and defeated armies. And at the end of the text, God links the new things that God is doing for the people with the end result that the people would declare God's praise. All of creation, the text suggests, with its ostriches and jackals, would have something to say, would play a part in the praise that arises from a redeemed world. A loud praise, surely. In Isaiah's redemptive vision, God's saving actions are for the purpose of being known by those that God saves. God doesn't save secretively and subtly. God saves, as the Old Testament refrain goes, so that you will know that I am the Lord. God saves as a way of demonstrating who God is. God saves in order to be known. Though quiet places can be places of healing and restoration for introverts like me, Heaven is likely to be a loud place, maybe even a rowdy place, because the songs of praise to the one seated on the throne will come from a great multitude that no one can count. Ostriches and jackals and squawking white birds will carry on praising their maker. And as the psalmist puts it, the people will say of God's redeeming work, God has done great things for us. For a long time, that ostrich remained silent, but finally she did wander over to the watering hole and bend over awkwardly yet elegantly for a drink. Water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, I suppose. And perhaps as her thirst was quenched, that awkward ostrich felt some sense of relief, some sense of gratitude for the provision of her creator by whose hand all the creatures of the earth are fed. And I thought of Jesus who said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And I asked myself the rhetorical question Jesus then asks his disciples. Are you not more valuable than birds? And for a moment I felt that value, For a moment, I felt that belovedness there beneath those squawking birds in the eyes of the God from whom all blessings flow, in the eyes of the God to whom even the stones cry out. 
in the eyes of the God whose praise all creation sings. Thanks be to God. Alleluia and amen.